But I think you've seen that uh, this series of songs and readings that uh, we just heard uh, was designed just to be a simple summary of the entire Bible, which clearly explains God's plan to rescue a broken world under the curse of sin, filled with people held captive by sin, all through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there are 31,000 verses in the Bible. A little fun fact tonight. But there is one verse that stands out above all the others because it provides, in my opinion, the simplest, the clearest summary of God's plan of salvation for the human race. Even if you've never read the Bible before, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. It's the most well-known, most beloved verse in the Bible. No other passage in Scripture has been used by the Spirit of God to help people find their way to heaven than this verse. It is simple but profound, and it is perhaps the greatest verse in all of God's Word. I'm referring to John 3.16. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I want to spend the next few minutes just talking about all that is in that verse, and I want to suggest to you some reasons why I think John 3.16 is the greatest verse in the Bible. And when we're done, I think you'll agree with me that John 3.16 is really the Christmas story in a nutshell. So why do I think John 3.16 is the greatest verse in the Bible? Well, first of all, it talks about the greatest being, God, for God. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth who gives all people, life and breath and all things. The God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth and determined when we would live and where each of us would live. The creator, the sustainer, the controller of the entire universe who is eternal, self-existing and is in need of nothing or no one. The all-glorious, all-wise, ever-faithful, Always good, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who sits high and lifted up and is worshiped and adored by angels incessantly. And the whole time they hide themselves with their wings as they cry, Holy, holy, holy. It is this perfectly pure and just God who hates sin so much that he cannot even look at it who graciously and mercifully took the initiative to make a way for an evil world full of sinful creatures like us to be forgiven for our rebellion against him and be reconciled to him. The Old Testament description of God is this, in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is the greatest being, God. But also we see here in this verse 
not only the greatest being, but we see the greatest motive. The greatest motive. For God so loved the world. The Bible says that God is love. And the word that is used to describe the love of God in the original language that the New Testament was written is the word agape, a word that most of us are familiar with. Agape can be best defined as selfless, sacrificial, unconditional commitment, which is not based on the attractiveness of the one loved. Now, that's different from our kind of love, human love, because human love is oftentimes, most often, based on the attractiveness of the object. However, the truth of it is that we weren't attractive to God. In fact, we were repulsive to God. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Someone has said it this way, talking about the love of God. He said, the love of God is uninfluenced. God's love was entirely unmoved by anything in us. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing, but to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. And so we find in this verse, for God so loved the world, it tells us not just that God loved us, but that he so loved us. In other words, he loved us so much. The, the so there emphasizes the greatness, the intensity of God's love. The Bible speaks about this great love that the Father has bestowed on us. Paul in Ephesians 3 prayed for the believers in Ephesus that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In other, in other words, God's love is so vast, it's so incomprehensible, it's, a, it's unfathomable, it's, it's deeper than we're ever able to grasp. Someone asked the brilliant Swiss theologian Karl Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? And he paused for a moment and said this, unexpectedly and really shocking to those who were there listening. His answer was simply, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Greatest thought ever been through my brilliant mind. And so we see the greatest being, we see the greatest motive, but we also see here the greatest need. It says, for God so loved the world. Now, this statement was originally made to Nicodemus, who was a Jewish teacher who lived in the days of Jesus, and he had come in the night to ask Jesus what he had to do to be born again. And so this must have shocked Nicodemus, when he, heard that, when he heard Jesus say that God loved the world, because in his mind and in the mind of all the Jews that, that lived during the time of Jesus, God only loved the Jews and hated the rest of the people in the world. 
And so Jesus was clearly emphasizing here that God's love goes beyond just the Jews. It extends to the Gentiles as well, which is everyone else in the world. And so when it says, for God so loved the world, he, he was referring there to the entire fallen human race who is living in outright rebellion against God and is helplessly bound by sin and hopelessly bound for hell. So the amazing thing here about God's love is not the vastness of the world. Wow, he loved the whole world. Wow. No, it's the wickedness of the world. In other words, what makes God's love for the world so great isn't because it's so big, but because it's so bad. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, describing all of us, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul describes us as, as spiritual zombies, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. So we see the greatest being and the greatest motive and the greatest need, but we also see here the greatest gift which is appropriate for Christmas Eve to talk about gifts. But it says, for God so loved the world that he, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we deserve, what we got coming to us rightfully is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it would have been perfectly just for God to send his son to earth to kill all of us and banish all of us to hell for eternity. But instead, he chose to send his son to earth and kill him in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus endured the punishment that we deserve. And when Jesus was on the cross, God poured all of his wrath against man's sin on Jesus. And Jesus felt the full fury of God's anger towards sin that should have been vented on us. And God watched in silence from heaven as his beloved son was despised and rejected and mistreated and brutally beaten and nailed to the cross while people mocked and jeered, and worst of all, while he experienced separation from his father's presence. And I think what pained God most had to have been when his son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. You may be familiar with the story in the Old Testament of Abraham the father of Israel, who was asked by God to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And as you know, the story, he gets to the top of the mountain and Isaac says, Daddy, we have the, the knife and we've got the wood and we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Little did he know he was going to be that sacrifice. And as he 
was laid there on that altar, and his father raised the knife in obedience to God's command, God said, stop. Don't kill your son. Now I know that you love me more than you love him. And immediately over in the thicket, there was a, a lamb that was provided that had gotten stuck there, and they took him and they sacrificed that lamb in Isaac's place. Well, that's all a, a picture of God and his son, Jesus Christ. God didn't require Abraham to follow through on his commitment to kill his son, but provided a lamb to take his place so Isaac didn't have to die. God, on the other hand, did follow through on his commitment to kill his son, who was the lamb of God, the lamb that God provided to take our place so we don't have to die. Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so did he not open his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. God the Father gave us his very best. He could not have loved us any more than he did than by sacrificing the one thing he loved more than anyone or anything, his only begotten son, the greatest gift. But that's not all. There's also the greatest offer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him the invitation to receive Jesus Christ is offered to everyone. From the most wretched sinner who doesn't think they can be forgiven, there may be someone like that here tonight. You just think, man, I'm such a wreck. There's no way I, God would ever forgive me for what I've done. To the most self-righteous religious person who doesn't think they need to be forgiven. There may be someone like that here tonight. You're here kind of just checking off the box, but this is what religious people do. They show up to church on Christmas Eve and you don't feel any need for forgiveness. But this offer is made to every one of us. In fact, you could put your own name in this verse. For God so loved Dave that if Dave believes for God so loved Sarah that if Sarah believes, the real question is, well, what does it mean to believe? Because I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are like, well, I believe in Jesus. Why wouldn't I believe in Jesus? Well, John 3.36, just a few verses later, says this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Interesting that the Bible uses the word believe and obey interchangeably. And so whatever believe means, it doesn't mean that you just believe something in your head. You accept some facts about Jesus. No, you believe it to the point where you obey it. You follow it. You live it. 
In fact, the closest context here in John 3.16, I think, is the answer to the question, what does it mean to believe? In verse 14, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This was a quote, uh, or a reference, I should say, to uh, something that happened back in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21, uh, it just talks about how they were grumbling and they were complaining that they had to be out in the desert with nothing to eat but this manna, this bread. And, uh, and so God punished them, disciplined them for their whining and their complaining, and he sent poisonous snakes into the camp. And the people were getting bit by these snakes and they were dying. And so the people realized, oh, we've sinned against God. And so they ran to Moses and said, Moses, please pray to God, intercede for us and tell him to take the snakes away. We get it. We sinned. We repent. And so God's answer was different than they asked. Instead of taking the snakes away, he told Moses, hey, I want you to make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick in the middle of the camp. And when the snakes come in and bite somebody, tell them they need to look at that bronze serpent on the stick and believe that by looking at that serpent that they would be healed and they won't die. And that's exactly what happened. The, the, the serpents continued to come. The snakes kept coming and kept biting the people, but those that by faith would look at that serpent were healed and they didn't die. Again, that was a picture of what was to come with Jesus. In the same way, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Listen, we've all been bit by a snake called sin. And we're gonna die unless we look to Christ in faith, believing that he took our place on the cross and what he did for us in our place, on the cross, is the only way that we can be made right with God. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We're never, never going to be good enough. We can't give enough money. We can't do enough good deeds. It's trusting in Christ and his work alone. What an offer. But there's something else. This offer is motivated, if you will, by the greatest horror the greatest horror. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The word perish is a reference not just to death, but to damnation in hell forever. You see, God is not only a God of infinite love, but he's also a God of infinite holiness. And he requires sin to be punished in an infinite way. In what the Bible talks about, endless suffering and torment in hell. Now, obviously hell is not a popular subject, and that's why so many people deny that there's a place like hell that actually exists, but the reality is Jesus himself said way more about hell than he actually did about heaven. And he talked about outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and a furnace of fire and eternal punishment and where, where the worm does, does not die and the fire goes unquenched and there's torment and agony in this flame. 
Listen to what some of the other New Testament writers said about hell. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who reject Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will be thrown into the lake of fire, tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of that torment will go up forever and ever. There'll be no rest day and night. So the thought of of spending eternity in hell should horrify all of us. But this will be the eternal state of those who refuse to repent of their sin and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, there's one more thing that makes this the greatest verse in the Bible, in my opinion, and that is the greatest hope. It doesn't end with the greatest horror. Aren't we grateful for that? It ends with the greatest hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And eternal life refers to not just the quantity of life that we will enjoy when we go to heaven, but it also refers to a quality of life which everyone who repents and believes in Jesus enjoys while they're here on earth. That abundant life that Jesus promised But the Bible promises all those who die in Christ, believing in Christ, will live forever with God in heaven, where they'll experience no death, no sorrow, no pain, and best of all, no sin. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, talking about when Christ will return, he'll come back a second time. Uh, When he came the first time, was born as a baby in a manger, well, he's going to come a second time as a warrior riding uh, on a horse. And this is what Paul says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. In other words, those those who have died, we want you to know what happens to people when they die. Don't don't be like those people who who grieve and they have no hope, like I'll never see this person ever again before, or I'll never see him again, I guess is is what he's saying. Don't, Don't be that person that grieves with no hope. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep those who have died, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the blessed hope of every Christian. This is the thrill of hope that we have been talking about tonight. So, John 3.16, in God's great love, he provided a way for sinful people like you, like me, to escape his wrath against our sin in hell by sacrificing his most precious possession, his beloved son on the cross so that anyone who believes and obeys him as their Lord and Savior can live forever with him in heaven. That's the Christmas story in a nutshell. Would you bow your heads with me right now, please?
And I just want to encourage you to think with me just for a, another minute or so. And just ask yourself, am I willing to acknowledge that there is a God and that I've sinned against? And do I admit that I deserve to be punished by spending eternity apart from him in hell? Ask yourself, do I, do I believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for my sins so that I could be forgiven and enjoy eternal life in heaven? And maybe the, the hardest question to ask yourself is, am I willing to repent of my sin and commit my life to follow and obey Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Some of you may want to do that right now. That you've been listening attentively to these songs and to this message and, and, and you know that God's been speaking to you tonight and he wants you to come home to him. He wants you to get right with him. And so I encourage you, if that's you, that you would just pray in your heart, just quietly in your own mind and heart, something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner who deserves to be punished for my sin. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place so that I could be forgiven for my sin. If you believe that, tell him. And right now, I turn away from my life of sin and I place my trust in Jesus as the only way I can be made right with you. And then just tell him this. God, I commit the rest of my life to follow and obey Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Father, we love the Christmas story. It's the story of the Bible. It's the good news of salvation. It's all all part of your plan. You sending your son into this sin-cursed world to deliver us who were enslaved to sin so that we could know joy and peace and true happiness and eternal life in heaven. And I pray that you would use the the songs and the message and or even maybe the interaction with those uh, around us tonight to draw us closer to yourself. For those of us that already know you, Father, that our minds would be uh, thrilled, our hearts would be filled with joy. And Lord, for those that may not know you that are here with us this evening, that they would hear all of this, through all of this, you calling out to them, calling them to come home and to be right with you. And so we're grateful for this time that we've been able to tell the story again, one more time, so that those that may have never heard it before can know the joy and the peace and the happiness that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.